0: This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. A Clockwork Orange on the Stage, Part 2 In this episode, we talk to the creative force behind the theatre company Action to the Word, whose adaptation of A Clockwork Orange ran in various forms and at various theatres around the world for a decade. Alexandra Spencer-Jones is the Artistic Director of Action to the Word. She is a theatre director and Shakespeare specialist. She is currently working on a new production of Coriolanus, which will be released as a theatre film later in 2021. She is also halfway through the writing of her first novel, Chopped Logic. Martin McCready played Alex in the first run of Action to the Words of Clockwork Orange, and can currently be seen in the Netflix series The Haunting of Bly Manor and The Alienist.
1: Well, welcome everybody to this latest episode of our podcast, um, today, I'm talking to Alex Spencer-Jones and Martin McCready, who are involved in a very significant production of A Clockwork Orange. Um, and uh, if you could just introduce yourselves briefly. Hi, hi Alex. Hi.
2: Uh, hello, Will.
1: Hi. And hi, Martin. Hi, Will. Hi. Thanks for joining joining us. Um, maybe we'll start with you, Alex. Um, could you tell us how, could you begin at the beginning? Perhaps tell us how you got into theatre. Where did your company Action to the Word begin?
2: Uh, Lovely. Uh, So I actually was an actor and professional uh, actor as a child. And I did the the typical Liverpool and Northwest circuit for musical theatre as well as a child performer, which my company uh, often and Martin has often ribbed me for. Um, And I was in a TV soap for the majority of my childhood, which was dreadful and um, went on to uh, study English at university. And during that time, just got really heavily involved with theatre um, in every way, shape or form. I think over the course of three years, I clutched you know heavily to my degree. In, <laughs> and really, I was there to do uh, Amdram and um, student theatre. I did nearly 40 productions in three years. And during that time, I was part of the Cambridge Footlights. So I was quite, um, uh, at least at the time, I thought I was funny. And then I I, I managed to get... Um, Quite a prestigious uh, directing award at uni called the ETG, which is this opportunity to take loads of actors in a coach around Europe over the holidays with a a performance of Shakespeare. Um, And I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. So that was, you know, a really formative moment. I think Trevor Nunn and uh, Derek Jacobi set up that system 50 years ago and every year it's sort of like the honoured actors of that year get this opportunity to perform and I did it twice which was amazing uh, and everything since has sort of paled in comparison frankly um, and so then I um, you know quite believed myself the pick of the crop I'd always been the sort of poor kid at the feast at Cambridge and I emerged feeling like that didn't matter and that I was going to take over the National Theatre and everything was fine. And I managed to get a a good couple of um, unpaid assistant director jobs, but pretty much it was a tragedy waiting to happen. And it only took about two months before I said to myself, look, I'm going to have to take hand of this and actually start my own collective. I'd always been obsessed in my study of theatre with um, the director and theatre maker Peter Brook, who had famously said that you don't need anything except for an audience and and um, the artist to create theatre. He was nuts. You know, he'd taken a a carpet um, around India with some cool uh, hippie lovers of his, Glenda Jackson being one of them. Um, and they'd ended up going place to place, rolling out this carpet and doing their thing. And I thought, that's what I want to do, essentially, but with Shakespeare peppered on top. And so uh, flash forward to this time um, 12 years ago. And I was living in what I affectionately termed the squat. It wasn't actually a squat. It was a sort of, you know, one of these guardianships that you see about the place. Um, and it actually became a sort of live work space that I was able to make fringe theatre in at the same time as my job in production of commercial theatre. I worked for a, a comedy agent called Avalon um, and then a couple of other um, theatre touring companies. And so if you like, my day job was producing um, and touring theatre. And the thing that would be around that was this, these passion projects that came from my heart. Um, and then the, if you like, the first major foray into that scene was in 2009. Um, And that's why it's amazing that Martin and I are here to talk about that today, because that's where Clockwork came from. Even though that wasn't Clockwork, that wasn't the inaugural show, that's where it came from. Um, Yeah, and so if you like, now I'm uh, a freelancer, theatre director, writer, Shakespearean academic on the side. Um, And I created Action to the Word Theatre Company then and there. Um, which has been running ever since. Action to the word being the advice that Hamlet gives to his players, because even though he's the Prince of Denmark and has no right talking to a director to say what like they should do, he, he tells these actors that rock up into his play, hey, you should suit the action to the word, the word to the action, because he literally knows everything and so... Me as a complacent twenty-something uh, thought the same, and so stole his name.
1: So, but uh, well, you mentioned Shakespeare a few times, and obviously that's where the that's that's the genesis of the name. But um, where does Clockwork Orange come in?
2: Right. Um, so there's a few answers to that really. And so we were creating this um, piece of site-specific, quite exciting rock and roll uh, Shakespeare. We were doing Romeo and Juliet for a now um, completely and through no coincidence of what I'm about to tell you, um, eradicated theatre. We we created this thing called the Abbey Fest, which was on the Merton Abbey Mills site, which if you don't know it, uh, Will, is a very cool place to visit. You know, there's a pub, a cafe, a Victorian bandstand, this cute little uh, river wandle that goes through it. And um, uh, the oldest, I think, mill, Martin, the oldest mill house in all of London.
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a few centuries old or something. Yeah,
2: like. and um, and I was given this site for free, basically, and told, "Can you make some theatre on it?" And this, we were all so young and so mad that we made this wonderful piece of Shakespeare that took you with the action across the site. This place is really unique because it's actually under a car park, um, and an underpass got a crypt, like a real crypt, and so. It was this most amazing piece of site-specific theatre that we put together in the summer of two thousand and nine, uh, in which Martin was cast as Romeo. Well,
1: why don't you tell us a bit about that, Martin? Was this um, well, well, was this towards the beginning of your of your acting career?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, I sort of uh, moved down to London uh, the January prior, and uh, because I hadn't gone to sort of I'd done studied drama at. At university, but as an academic sort of endeavor, endeavor, I didn't really go to uh, drama school, as it were, and uh, so I, I thought, well, I'll go down to London and try and get onto the fringe circuit, and uh, yeah, I, there was a there was a website called Casting Call Pro at the time that I think still in operation, but uh, yeah, I put a little profile on there, uh, and yeah, th- this production I think was posted on there about March. So I moved down there January and this was the third thing I applied for an audition for. And I, I, you know, I managed to bag Romeo, which was a great surprise to me because I knew that Action to the Word had had great success the year prior with a production of Titus Andronicus so up at the Edinburgh Fringe. And it had been a five star show up there. I knew that Alex uh, had, you know, she was sought after because, you know, she was because of her achievements at Cambridge Uni and the ECG tours. and and. Yeah, I remember actually the first uh, audition being in the Waterloo County Hall, which was it was really intimidating actually because I went in and it was like it was like a big, vast oak wood panelled room with huge windows overlooking the Thames and the Houses of Parliament across the way, and I'm you know just council boy and you know, I fresh fresh to London like those two ladies looking rather. Discerning and uh, in the corner of the room behind a table in this vast space, and I felt like the girl from Flashdance. You know, I (laughs) thought I ought to have some leg warmers on here or something. But uh, anyway, uh, I had uh, I had a Henry V at my sleeve uh, once more into the breach, and I, with all my lack of technical training, I I literally blew my vocal cords out giving that (laughs) in the room. Forgot that I had to give a modern piece and uh, yeah I, I, when I came back to give my modern my voice was so raspy I thought geez I've blown this uh but no the, yeah so I, that's that that was the first production I got to do and we didn't get paid any money or anything but uh no it was it was exceptional it was, it was just a great thing to be a part of I learned I learned a great deal from ASJ just in that initial uh initial run and all the other actors were were fantastic They they came from other backgrounds like you know Lambda and uh, Central and all these accredited drama schools so I was actually able to sort of observe them and, and learn uh, whilst doing it yeah it was great.
1: So you, so Romeo and Juliet went ahead and well and it sounds like you would got the beginnings of a, a group together Alex yeah. And um, yeah. but then a sort of unlikely or perhaps not so unlikely turn you uh, took on Clockwork Orange do you want to tell us yeah. a bit well, about, about that?
2: The spin comes quite easily, actually, because while we rehearse in that, um, I've always thought of Shakespeare as sort of trifle anyway, and that none of the characters in Shakespeare are straightforward. And oftentimes your Romeo is, you know, you close your eyes and you imagine Leonardo DiCaprio, and that's all you get. Um, you know, praise be upon Leo. I don't I don't wish to <laughs> diss him, but um, it's not enough for me where Romeo's concerned. I look, as Hamlet would, to the text for my clues. Um, And if you know Romeo and Juliet well, there's a scene where Romeo is having not slept for five days in complete despair. He's killed Tybalt. He's never here to fly before. Um, He's married Juliet and he's been separated from her and being deemed banished. And he's got this incredibly complicated speech whereby he essentially tears his father figure and mentor to pieces Um, And I saw Martin do this and we worked really closely on the text. And like Martin says, you know, it was very rock and roll. We were rehearsing in uh, the back of pubs or anywhere that would have us because we didn't have a budget. Um, But the one thing that was truly, truly honoured was the text, which we worshipped and cut into and analysed. And the way Martin handled this text was such that I, for the first time in my life, understood Romeo's complexity and I thought and this is the first um step on the journey this is an interesting actor because this is someone that is playing a romantic lead but in this scene is a thorough and utter mess a villain and if he can play a good boy that's playing bad could he play a bad boy that's playing good um which led me to a big part of my history because my English teacher at school he was um He was a Mancunian, actually, I think. And he'd been in charge of the police force and openly admitted to my entire school that he was a corrupt cop. (laughs) And um, he was a superb man and a brilliant teacher, but he had no business teaching what he was teaching to us, which was catcher in the rye. And in front of the class of eight of us, he said, I'm not teaching you this shit before I've taught you the British version. I'm going to teach you Clockwork Orange. And he said, but for God's sake, don't tell your parents. He says, "You know, keep it, keep it at home, keep it discreet." And so, like, there's me at home, like weaving Clockwork Orange under the bed sheets when I'm fifteen, thinking I'm like the coolest person in the world. <laughs> and my poor father, my long suffering father, said to me when he caught me, "I love Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Let's watch the film on the sly." And so, my mom, who rest in peace, was quite religious round the round the edges. She would have had none of that at the time. Um, But my dad let me. And so it became a sort of secret between me and him and my cool English teacher. And so that sprung immediately to mind when I was looking for that sort of role. Um, I still put Martin through his paces, mind. He had to audition for it. Um, And at the time, we were thinking about doing the play as it's written with the songs. And so Martin actually auditioned with a song as well. (laughs) Um, And even though Martin can sing... He's not from the musical theatre world, so that was a big stretch for him. And it's, um, it's, it's something I think both he and I are quite glad that we ditched early on, um, not simply because um, he didn't enjoy performing them, because I'm sure he did, but, but rather we made the decision in collaboration with the estate to go in a slightly different direction with the transitions. Um, and the final reason why I chose to do Clockwork Orange, again, I'm back to the theatre of necessity and not having much... As I say, I'm living in this weird, um, I guess, <clears throat> empty nursing home. At the time, I know that sounds a bit strange, but a swing, it was
3: a, swing field. Yeah, pool. it was
2: like a yeah. empty nursing home. You know, no one else was there really, and um, and so I had these facilities to rehearse with. I had a friend who ran Proud Camden. It's not there anymore, but it's this cool set of stables in Camden that they turned into a nightclub. And at the time, it was it was awfully cool. It was far too cool for me to be in there. And it was black and white pictures on the wall of, like, the Rolling Stones. And I said to her, do you ever do theatre here? And, like, they do bar nights and, like, burlesque nights and stuff. And she went, no, but you can do it if you make 600 quid on the bar. And I thought, we could do that, I reckon. We could do that for three nights. And, um, yeah, I mean, we did. We had a queue right around the corner. But as these guys were acting their backsides off in the first ever outing of it, they were battling against the Battle of the Bands next door, <laughs> you know, Kings of Leon next door, the top of our voices, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's the first production came from that, really, because we didn't have any facilities. So I said to the lads, let's just wear black and white like the pictures on the walls. Let's just, wear, let's just have a table and four chairs because we've got nothing else. So like we'd learned to text with Romeo and Juliet, we learned to storytelling and we learned to, as it, as it happened, physicality. Um, and that, that was the beginning of it. Um, and speak, I mean, to, to speak further on the vision of it, it started as an all-male production, I think, because of Shakespeare as well. Because at the time, Romeo and Juliet had been traditionally cast And I say that because I've done a lot of productions of Shakespeare since and I've come away from um, typical gender casting in some of them. But that particular production of Romeo and Juliet was trad casting. And so there was only a few girls. And so I'd been very used to working with gentlemen at the time. Uh, And so it had that Shakespearean genesis as well. And also I know the novella very well. And I found the women of the novella to be a little faceless. And I wanted to investigate how, if you like, how faceless they could be um, at the time.
1: Yes. And uh, well, yes, a lot of the characters in the in the novel are perhaps perhaps ciphers, aren't they? They're, you know, yeah. they're, they're not kind of fully fleshed out, apart from maybe Alex. And I, Martin, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the character of Alex. Um, As Jay's just t- talked about your audition, but uh, what, what were you thinking about when you first came to the role?
3: Well, uh, the very first thing is, of course, the film, just because of how, you know, my earliest memories of A Clockwork Orange were seeing the the, the cover of the film and you know, like a VHS laying around the house. And it always captured my imagination because I just thought, just by the images standards, what the hell is this? You know, this guy's leaning out of a black triangle with a dagger in his hands. And a it's just strange. And, um, and as I grew grew older, I came to realise that it had been a film that had been banned. There was all this notoriety regarding uh, the piece itself. I actually had no idea that you know it had started life as a book or as a novella. And uh, it was actually when uh, ASJ proposed it that I took up the the book, you know, and I started researching it. And uh, you know, when I read the novella, I was just blown away, really, by first how uh, seemingly impenetrable it was uh given the language uh but then I, you find yourself the first five or six pages i was constantly to and fro to the glossary at the back uh but then once you unlock that sort of nadsat uh and you're able to embark on the story properly uh again i was just blown away by the novella i think to be honest prepping for the role everything i everything that enticed me and, and and everything that I would have required in terms of building the guy up or taking him into the, my mind the novella gives you you know it's uh um uh, yeah I I just I, I really just delved into the book um I sort of I I, I was a fan actually I think I watched a film when I was about 17 for the first time and I did love that film and I love Stanley Kubrick's work in general and um and I loved Malcolm McDowell's performance. But then, when I when I got this come up, come up and offered to me, a, a, or rather that it came up as a possibility to do, uh, I didn't watch the film then, and I didn't actually watch the film then for about God, probably about five years after I departed the role, because uh, I just didn't want that interpretation coming in the way. So uh, for me, it was as from my own experiences of growing up in a council estate, in Northampton, and. Uh, perhaps seeing uh, and witnessing people, perhaps that lived their lives on the wrong side of the tracks. So, uh, uh, I was able to sort of, you know, implement that sort of anecdotal knowledge, and and uh, along with the book, yeah, just try and formulate, and alongside ASJ, just formulate our, our sort of, uh, yeah, incarnation of the guy.
1: And and the incarnation you came up with. I mean, I've seen the. I've seen action to the words production a number of times and in different contexts, but um, the the character of Alex is, is a very menacing one. Mm. And uh, they, uh, the experience of the whole piece is a very physical one, I think for the audience. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because the physicality and the kinetic energy of the production itself is something that's, that really is very distinctive.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I think um, like ASJ touched upon earlier, we, Really did have nothing to go on. You know, there was literally a table and four chairs. So, with so much empty space, uh you know, you really, you really have to fill it. You know, you, have, you know, I'm of the I'm the kind of actor. I come from a, you know, my mode of thinking is that, you know, no audience is obliged to just sit sit there, and just watch you, be totally stagnant and self indulgent and deliver text without it, uh, inhabiting the space in some way and and at the time I did have and I still have a, a sort of a infatuation with a great movers like uh, Nureyev or Baryshnikov or uh, Carlos Acosta at the time who I'd seen at the Coliseum and blew me away and I, just people performers that were able to use their body in that way and it became because of course in the book the language Alex yes he's a menacing character but he has God, I'm, I feel myself kind of slipping back into him. <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel him there. This is rather bizarre, actually. Uh, he he has a very set. He has a set of ideals. He's not just menacing for the sake of it. He's you know he's he you know he berates uh, Dim. He hates uncouth behavior. He is uh, all about the aesthetic. Uh, you know he has a predisposition to fashion and language, high art. He understands social structures around him. In the book, he will read a newspaper. He will see, uh, through a mere discourse analysis, a, a, a sale of baked beans. It, okay. He thinks it's hilarious. You know, this capitalism, he, he, he is deconstructing everything at phenomenal scale. And in the book, that's, that's communicated through the high language and this hybrid amalgamation of uh, Russian and English, which I think Burgess Picked because they were the two superpower languages at the time, and he thought, "What a, what a, what a funny idea that would be to sort of amalgamate the two and put them in the possession of a fifteen-year-old." Um, uh, ne'er do well, uh, but with the in the book, it's the language, and, and and in the film with Stanley Kubrick, I suppose he uses rather brash visuals and strange cuts, and uh, you know, there's a bit where he, where he bonks the lady over the head with a rocking dildo type statue and there's a big crash bang and an animated sort of face it's it's bizarre but in the theatre what we have at our disposal is our own bodies they become the conduit and through expression and through a high style uh mannered sort of uh expression through the body and the inhabiting of the space you can kind of communicate the same thing and i think personally we achieved a similar sort of juxtaposition in in during, say, our fight scenes or that Billy Boy fight at the beginning, we you have stark violence of chains and punches and kicks and headbutts and staccato flashes of violence. But then, when once you juxtapose them with the sort of balletic display of turned-out legs and and uh, jetés in the middle of the stage, you know it's sort of uh, that's the sort of juxtaposition that's going on in Alex's mind. He's not quite seeing just the violence. He's it also runs parallel with his high ideals so yeah i think that's where the physicality
1: came in that's great martin sorry i'm just trying to digest that i think that's i think that's a fascinating take on it and i hadn't um, i hadn't appreciated i suppose just how the uh, the movement uh, played directly in and enhanced the um, uh, the text written by burgess i wonder if you you might want to say a bit about the um about the staging alex about, about yeah i mean
2: we we made a decision um to tell the world through his eyes and the way he sees things like in the novella and the most truthful way of doing that was that he has that heightened style. And so hence why some of the transitions take him into eighties pop videos. Some of them take him into Western movies. He, Alex is a hugely absorbent, incredibly intellectual young man. Um, And throughout uh, the the creation and the collaboration of Martin and I and the various different Alexes that have followed Martin's performance. Um, one of the big things I've come at them with is that they need to play him like a white knight, like something that is fighting for a cause of their own ideals. And that's why it's lovely to hear the way Martin talks about him with such, still with such respect, you know. In the novella, <clears throat> there's an amazing quote that always stands out to me. And it's when he says that at the time, that he's reflecting on he could flash and shine artistic. And he also says that he was so adept with his knife at the time that he could use it like a barber in a rough on a rough ship. And I always thought about that when we were we were making things from his perspective. And I love Burgess's novellas for this because one hand clapping does the same. It has this sort of understanding of the world through their eyes. Um, and that became our obsession, really. And it just so happened that. Um, alongside that Romeo energy that we're talking about when Martin was making him, he has got that connection to his almost, I guess, matador physicality. Um, He's he's, he's like a catabatic storm of uh, grace and fury. (laughs) And so, you know, you're sort of sucked into this physical vortex with him. Um, and in the in the various different incarnations after Martin left, and I think Martin did nearly three hundred shows of Clockwork Orange, yeah. um, and there's been many more since. But that that was the, all the hard work, all the first innings and the foundation blocks. You know, we went through various different drafts of him and refined him and looked back and reflected. And Martin and I became near on obsessed with the novella. Uh, I think we between us read it five or six times while we were working on it. Um, and and every choice that we made came from the text. Yeah. Um, at all times, you know, yeah. and we both we both respect and love the film, but everything became about us conveying that Alex wanted a better world, and at no point uh, indulged in his own villainy. And so, you know, th- what's interesting is since the production's become known for its physique and its physicality, but the truth of the matter is, Will that the first outing, the lads that played it, none of them had that in mind or that casting with them. It, the, their fitness came from the fact that the fit, that it was essentially like 90 minutes of circuit training. It was so challenging a piece to perform and it made them all fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and as time goes on in a production and the show ran on and off for nearly a decade, um, that you know that an original genesis got slightly bastardized, and it became about the way things were pretty, and that was never where it, it was born.
1: Well, perhaps we could just talk a bit about that that decade. I mean, you you were there for goodness three hundred shows at the beginning, Martin, and then but um, the the production sort of well it changed obviously as you just described and, and got bigger in various ways and and has appeared in um, in various different countries and different contexts. I wondered if, Alex, you'd be able to tell us a bit about, about some yeah, of those. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so we had, uh, uh, this time 10 years ago, my God, Martin. <laughs> it's this time 10 years ago, we went to Edinburgh off our own back and we had a season of three shows and we worked like absolute trojans um, to get the company reputation out there and solidify the... Uh, the success of Clockwork And it was picked up by professional producers Those producers at the time Were Glennis Henderson Productions Who stayed with it till the end no. um, And they they sort of gave it a budget And uh, a professional house You know, we ended up the year later In another Edinburgh Festival context Peddling our wares to the general But with a couple of production values now Like our chairs all matched, for example <laughs> Um <laughs> Basic upgrades, you know, um, um, and we had a wage which was rich. And then um, we got picked up pretty much immediately into Soho Theatre for a long and very successful season, which Martin helmed. Um, and we played Soho at the Christmas of very festive 2012 into the beginning of 2013. Um, and then it got picked up into a long uh, Australian tour which was, I think, nearly three months. Um, Martin helmed that one up too and then um, took a bow because he had Horizons Elsewhere. Um, What did
1: did the Australians make of... uh, (laughs) Uh,
2: Right, it depended on where in Australia. Yeah,
3: it depends on where, yeah. If you Um, ask (laughs) Melburnians, they'll come at you as, you know, them discerning Melburnians and their (laughs) cultural appetites. (laughs) All 200 years of it. And then, uh, yeah, if you ask them, or if you ask the Sydney-siders, you get something else, yeah.
2: In some places, they asked for a glossary. Right. Which was tough for us because we'd always had a lot of press and a lot of feedback that the NADSAT and the use of NADSAT was so clear that there was no necessity for that. And so, you know, fast forward to Martin and I's heartbreaking slightly. Um, but then when we were in Sydney, it was received so well that we understood that it did depend on the culture we were visiting. But yeah, after that, we we did a little shift round of cast. The, the, the ensemble stayed. We had a, a new Alex called Adam Search, and he did one set of outings. That was the UK tour. Um, And it visited mid-scale regional theatres up and down the country. Um, And then that that same company went to Hong Kong for a season, which was incredibly successful, if a little ridiculous. So we were playing in a a 2,500-seater theatre. Now, bear in mind, Starlight Express had just got out with six wagons. The company of 14 stage managers said to my production manager, where's your set? And he pointed to the table and chairs and went, "That's that's it there." Um, but we managed to do really well there as well. It was a little overwhelming for the lads who'd played it in a two hundred and you know two hundred and fifty seater theatre in Soho. Um, but we got on with it and it was really successful. And then after that, we did a Norwegian tour. Another another cast turnaround, a bit more drastic a cast turnaround this time. Um, a new Alex, a younger Alex, if you like, who would helm it until we closed it. Um, and he then led a brief stint in Singapore, which was cool, very good. Singapore, it was interesting because we were warned that it was going to be illegal, but but um because homosexuality is still so controversial over there. And even though the production isn't homosexual as such, it's men emulating um. Uh, romantic gestures with each other and physical contact with each other and so sometimes it's confused as homoerotically you know um and we had none of that in fact I was asked to speak um in some sort of uh arenas about about that particular issue and a, a major moment for me was when someone very young came up to me and said thank you because there's never any theater that allows me to believe that we're free enough to to think like this which right. was, so
1: it gathered a sort of a big political
2: unreal uh, you know real, right. fantastic uh, and then the the closing chapter of it so far um was that um we did a london season of six weeks at the park theater uh, and that was sell out and really well received and and really cool because it was the first time we'd ever done it fully in the round um by in the round i mean everyone was sat round the the stage rather than on three sides or end on you know um and then um, american producers saw it and martin and i had been in talks like a million years before about taking it to broadway or taking it off broadway which is what we wanted to do to somewhere cool like a warehouse in brooklyn or
3: I think we got close to, uh, I think, BAM, was uh, the, yeah, it? Yeah, was so an academy cool. of music, yeah. That was we were cool.
2: going to do something cool with it over there. Yeah. Um, but our producers liaised with amazing producers called Martian Entertainment, who I'm, I'm still very close to creatively. Um, and they housed it in a very, very large theatre, um, which was, you know, it was off-Broadway, but it was really, it was on Broadway. It was over 500 seats. And it was quite the jump for the length of run. Um, and uh, I was given a really difficult dilemma because I wasn't allowed my UK cast because of visa law. Um, I was allowed to take on an exchange with the Donmar, um, Jono Davis, who was playing Alex at the time. Um, but even he had to go over there on the premise that should it start you know, uh, selling extremely well, that he'd have to leave the production and be replaced by an American artist as well. So that was quite devastating, really. Um not because I didn't want to collaborate with people, but the heart of it is it's British humour. You know, it's very it's very um, it's very much of the Northwest, I think. And uh, and so we had an American cast and suddenly our tiny little warehouse show that was supposed to be um, on top of the audience, you know, with the audience was so removed. But it was an amazing end to, to the story, really, because the, it divided the press entirely. And some people in um, in the press said it was the most unique and bizarre and wonderful thing they'd seen. And some were like, Who are these British clowns dancing around thinking they're doing West Side Story? And um uh, I take West Side Story from that equation and, and leave the rest, as you I'm sure you can imagine. And I've been approached to do it since, but actually with an all-female cast.
1: I see. And would that make sense to you?
2: Uh perchance. I I think I think clockwork has for me had its time um with that with our company i would be interested in doing it i think in um in the new world i.e post-covid to see what change what change our sort of government clusterfuck has made to um (laughs) to to the understanding of the piece but actually the the decision to do it all female could perhaps be a gimmick you know and i don't think that's right Right
1: I see and um, I, I think it's very it's very interesting what you're saying about how it uh, divided audiences off, off Broadway I mean yes. that's um, I and mean, that's that's what ha- happened to all of Burgess's own explorations <laughs> in <laughs> in, the, in the theater and it's also what happened to his novel actually it, yes. it that completely divided audiences too and it seems pretty clear that Klopp McCrange is going to carry on doing that in all sorts of ways. Um, I wanted to finish just by asking. Well, what, what does Clockwork Orange mean for you now, and is it does it, uh, does it still have a, an importance for your for your current practice and what you're going to do next?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been the exact start of my entire career. Um, my my reputation as a director sits on top of it. My um, humor. I think is interwoven with it. It's played a big part in my understanding of how to present but both my dark humour and my sort of slapstick um, on stage. I think people associate our company with that name straight away. Um, it's also created the, the most amazing adventures for me all over the world. Amazing creative partnerships with people that I hold so dear. Um, and certainly the foundation of it is is everything to me, really.
1: And how about you, Martin? It sounds like, well, Romeo, but also Alex were um, very important roles for you right at the beginning.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just I concur with everything that uh, ASJ just said. Um, yeah, just the experiences of uh, the places it went to and took us to and the lads that I got the pleasure of working alongside and 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 the various theater crews and stuff that i got to meet and work with and um yeah it's just it feels as well like because that again again like asj said that is really what my career that was the real starting point especially when we got that west end transfer and i picked up an agent and stuff and uh, well i had if agents vying to, to sign me up and and uh yeah it feels like i earned my stripes uh by coming through that way you know no one you know, we do know nepotism exists in all industries. It's particularly rife in our industry and in this country. You know, I think, uh, as we know, not long ago, there was a factoid that such a high percentage of BAFTA nominees uh, were privately educated or had attended public schools. And, you know, and I don't begrudge these people the start that they get in life. But when it is such a high percentage, I think it was about 68 percent, but only 6 percent of the populace attend a private school, we do have to think where that disparity is leading us and what it means for the artistic vision as a whole. But, you know, no one no one came I no one came and handed me on a silver platter. We worked, as ASJ said, rehearsing something in a squat with no money, courting, you know, producers here, but booking agents there, and just delivering, you know, solid performance after solid performance until it becomes this internationally recognized thing. And and became, you know, a success in both tabloids and the broadsheets and the audience as a whole and the burgeoning social media scene. So, no, I, I, it means the world to me. I'm very proud. It fills my heart with warmth. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot to owe uh, the Clockwork Orange and Anthony Burgess and, uh, and ASJ. And, yeah, um, a lot of love for it.
1: Well, that's a really positive note, I think, on which to end. Thank you, Martin and Alex, for joining in with us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Action to the Word, visit www.actiontotheword.com or follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Action to the Word. You can follow Alexandra Spencer-Jones and Martin McCrady on Instagram at alwaysasj and at martin.mccrady. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe at your favourite place to get podcasts.